ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Leaving my mark and being someone in this country, like, and I wanted to show that, hey, you know what? When I came here, I was nobody. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 47 with Vedangi Kulkarni. Uh, I met Vedangi for the first time virtually in the middle of lockdown when she asked me if I'd answer some questions for a course she's running about planning adventures and expeditions. We got on really well and I was keen to turn it all around and get her on the podcast. To be completely honest, I might have overlooked Vedangi initially. Um, we like to have people on the podcast who've done incredible things or lived full lives and, importantly, have had time to reflect on everything. But something just felt right sitting down to record with Vidangi. I could tell that she'd really put some thought into what she's been through over the last three years, and I was fascinated by her attitude, maybe even more so given her youth. The final green light for me was when she told me that she was planning on cycling to the place where we were recording. Um, I jumped on Google Maps and worked out it was a hundred mile journey, so it doesn't get any more real than that. So, uh, Vedangi, she's 21 years old and has cycled around the world. She'll tell you the story herself, um, but she built up to that challenge in the four or five years before with a series of misadventures and hugely steep learning curves. In this episode, we deep dive into not just the how, which is amazing in and of itself, but also the why. So over to Vedangi Kolkani. Thank you, first of all, for sitting down and doing this. Thank you for inviting me. And cycling all that way. <laughs> oh man, it was fun. I think I wouldn't rather have had it any other way. I'm glad I rode here because it gave me some time with myself, It, you know, to gain composure, to think. And yeah, uh, like earlier you said, be my, to be myself. And I think like now I truly can because I rode my bike here. Yeah, that's Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I feel like that. Maybe I should start riding my bike places. Um, okay, so I think a great place to start, especially with you and your background, is where did you grow up and what sort of child were you and what were your surroundings, what were you exposed to and what were your passions? Um, I grew up in India in a place called Pune. Um, well, Pune is a city, but I grew up in the outskirts and um, my parents 
have always been like super supportive with everything I do and I my dad always worked abroad so he used to be like 28 days in the middle of some ocean and 28 days in the house basically and when he used to be in the house we used to we used to talk about you know going places doing things and we used to go on hikes because Pune is kind of on a plateau and there's quite a few mountains around somewhere and yeah so it was it was really cool but um, I think um, <laughs> um, uh, the school I went to was quite religious well but I never believed in God so I always got in a bit of trouble with that and I always like I didn't go with the culture if that makes sense so I was always um the girl who made friends with boys when you're not supposed to do that. I was always the girl who played football with the guys when, I don't know, the girls were spending their PT just sitting and doing nothing. And I was always, I was not good at sports. I was, I wasn't great at football. I just wanted to make friendships. I just wanted to, you know, um, fit in because somehow hanging around with, 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 my female classmates didn't really like I didn't feel like I fit in I had nothing to talk about and I just felt like this boring slob and I was just like oh what am I doing with my life and most of my school life obviously I didn't have many friends I was always the one who I kind of you know went somewhere and ate their lunch alone sort of thing but sometimes I would just you know hang around with the guys and play football and that's how I somehow got into semi-professional professional football and um, yeah I was playing for a team a, a club called Pune FC Pune Football Club and I knew they were big and I knew they were starting a female team and I don't know how I got selected I, d I went for the trials and I was their number one goalkeeper and I'm not gonna lie I as a goalkeeper your job is to be commanding you're you, like you're you're in charge you have the whole field to yell at if they do something wrong and all that and yeah I wasn't commanding <laughs> I was none of that and I I always felt like I didn't really like I always felt like the other girls in the team didn't really like me and I I hate to say this but I was a pushover <laughs> I can't help it so if someone asked me to do something even if it wasn't my job I would do it but the reason I was a goalkeeper and the reason I chose to be one and the reason I at the time felt like I was a good one because I was not scared. I've broken my nose several times. I had braces which literally went through my like <laughs> lips several times from the inside and I've been injured far too many times in my head and like just my face basically and I've never been scared. Like I love just you know, diving for the ball and just going for it. And I think that's why I chose to play football in the first place. And um, <laughs> when I was 17, I kind of realized, right, um, I, I am playing football, but I'm, I'm not really enjoying the whole team dynamics right now. I would love to do something just by myself. And that's how 
it started when I say it. I mean, like the whole, you know, cycling, long distances, mountains, doing something new, being by myself, all of that. That started like when I decided that the whole team dynamics and football and goalkeeping wasn't working anymore. Um, but yeah, that's that's when I um, went on a really short kind of camp, a summer camp like thing, which was only for what, less than a week. And you were supposed to cycle, what, 60 kilometers with a group of people. And me and my ex-boyfriend went there. And I was, well, I was 17 at the time, yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that, that ride was, um, like, I met some really amazing people who have spent far too much time in the mountains there. And they were the ones who suggested that you're like... Because I, I kept kind of going ahead of the group or... I just wanted to ride by myself or just with my ex and yeah that that was literally how um, the other people not the other people well the trip leaders sort of thing they were like hey you could do a longer ride there is actually a route that goes across the Himalayas it's called um, you can go from Manali to Leh and Leh is in Jammu and Kashmir um, in Ladakh region Manali is in Himachal Pradesh and yeah and then there's another route which goes to Srinagar and they're like you can do the whole thing and I was like oh I can do the whole thing oh I want to do the whole thing but um, yeah I really diverted there right now like oh you asked me about how I grew up and I literally went all the way from there to talking about the Himalayan ride. No but... that's perfect <laughs> that's exactly where we were going with this I mean uh, so what made you, you know, you said, oh yeah, I want to do that ride. I want to go and cycle that long route. What was the appeal? What was the draw? The appeal was that people do it in groups and the group organizers didn't want me to go with the groups because I was under 18 and for insurance purposes or I don't know, maybe I was just a liability, which they didn't want to take. So yeah, I said to my dad that I want to do it alone. And the minute he said yes, I was like, hell yeah. Like, you're my man. <laughs> yeah, I want to do that then. Okay. And then then there was a but. He was like, but me and your mom don't want you to do it like all by yourself. How about we jump in a car and we wouldn't be directly behind you. We will be 10, 15 kilometers somewhere around. But yeah you will get your time and you will get to do what you want to, but we will do what we want to and be like, you know, in 15 kilometers radius and if something goes wrong, we'll be there. And it was legit because like, you could see that I didn't have much muscle in my body. I was skinny, like I was little, like what, what did I know, you know? <laughs> I, I still like, I'd still say that, what do I know? <laughs> um, and yeah, it was, it was fine and, and the altitude, um, I, on the very first day I faced altitude sickness, so, like, yeah, that was legit for them to want to be around. Um, and yeah, the day I started, like, I think the whole appeal that you asked me was the fact that I was going to do it by myself and so many people do it in groups. That was one. And second one was that the first time I went in the mountains, I bloody loved it. And I was like, it feels so nice to be in the middle of such huge, I don't know, and beautiful mountains. And like every time I looked around, I 
I forgot that I had anything to worry about. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And I knew the climbs were hard. And I knew I was. it was just going to get harder because the altitude increased with... The further along I went in the route, the altitude only increased. So it was going to be hard. <laughs> and yeah, I knew that. But I was kind of like... Like, I felt like with leaving football, I was kind of, you know, I was leaving everything in half. So before that, I used to do yoga as well, professionally. And I left that. Then I football, I left that and I was like, come on, like I need to, I need to see what I can do. I think I never pushed past a threshold and that's why I'm never finding out. And I thought, yeah, maybe that's my time. I should try. And then I was kind of like, you know, not much can go wrong. And someone had said to me that the mountains will take care of you. And this person had repeated that to me a lot of times and I was like, okay. We'll, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's kind of, that was the whole appeal. But, you know, let's see what I can do and if I can push past that threshold. And just quickly before, because I have a lot of questions to ask you about that. Um, can you describe, you know, for people who haven't been to that part of the world who are trying to sort of formulate a picture and an idea of what that looks like and what you're cycling along? You know, is it roads in the valleys? Is it mountain passes? What's the ground like and what does, <laughs> what does everything look like? So it's, yeah, there's some roads through valleys and Indus River is very fast flowing right alongside and it's like a very, very like blue river and more often than not, it's sunny, um, <laughs> at least when I went and um, the roads are tarmac when you're lucky. Um, when you're not, it's worse than fire roads at a bike park. <laughs> and um, the climbs are steep, some of them. And the altitude is... Um, the place where I started was 5,000 feet. And on day one, where I was supposed to climb to, was at 11,200 feet, oh, wow. I believe. So you can see, like, and, and the distance between that was only 32 kilometres. And so hang on, at this point, how much training have you done? I have, <laughs> my longest ride was 100 miles as training. And that was when my a mentor, which I met in the mountains, he, he suggested that um, there was this hill station close to our place. And he was like, well, when I say close, it's 100 miles, like, on the dot. And he was like, just leave from your house and ask your parents to like and and actually and even if I said I wanted to do it by myself my parents would want to jump in a car um and they they did obviously <laughs> and yeah it was really shit like honestly the first ride I had never rode over 50 kilometers I believe and that was going to be 100 miles, that's 160 kilometers. And I was like, holy shit, how am I going to do that? Um, and it was a very, very hot day. And the road was full of cars and loads of traffic. And there's two mini mountain passes before you go to like the massive one. And they're like very short, five kilometer climbs, both of them. And then the last climb is, I think, 10 or 11 kilometers. And 
<laughs> I was I was scared. I was like, I'm gonna need to stop often, and I didn't know the concept of recovering on the bike back then because that was like my first long ride, and my parents kept telling me that every ten kilometers you should stop and have water, and I was like, no, I'm not gonna stop in ten kilometers. Like, I'm gonna do at least what my longest ride has been so far before I stop, so that I can, you know, really see what I'm able to do and yeah I, I chose to I was like okay the minute I reached the 50 kilometer mark I was like okay I have to go at least five kilometers more to prove to my myself that I can do this um, so interesting so five kilometers more and there was this um, small we call it Daba Daba is a very it's not a restaurant it's not a cafe it's a tiny open place with a little shelter and yeah it's like someone's cooking on an open thing and it's not very safe like <laughs> but yeah i i stopped there and i ate something and i was like wow this is the longest one i've done and i have more than that to do again so i was like okay maybe i can do the distance i've done now and then stop and i re i learned that I'm actually able to do this. And the worst part was when the cars overtook and all that, because I was just like, oh, what's happening with me? And I didn't have a very good road bike. I had a cheap hybrid and yeah, it, it's like a hundred pound bike. It's, it's not a very great bike. I say that now at the time I was like, oh my God, I have such an amazing bike. And it is amazing, I still have it, but <laughs> that ride, um, every climb I did, I had an aim of stopping only once on the climb. I was like, okay, I will allow myself to stop only once. And it worked on the five kilometers one, on the big climb that I said, the 10, 11 kilometers one, I had to stop twice. And I was like, hmm, why, it's why not my thing. The, <laughs> what, why set the rules so strict for yourself? I really wanted to do the Himalayan ride and I wanted to show my parents that I am capable of it. And I know they've never put any pressure on me like that, but a part of me wanted to show them as well as myself that, look, you're not shit, you can ride bike and you can, if you can climb this, then the next climb you will find easier because you already have this in your head. And if you stop only once, then you will know that you've stopped only once. And the next time you do it, you will not want to stop at all. So I know that the more I do something, the less I'll want to stop, the less I'll want to kind of... I'll make it harder for myself as I go, just because somehow I will feel like I'm getting stronger. And just for that feeling of getting stronger, I stopped myself from stopping with climbs. Yeah, I mean, one of the most interesting things about this for me is, you know, so many people, particularly young people, suffer with, you know, imposter syndrome and a total lack of confidence. Whereas, you know, you seem as though you just thought, oh, I can do that. Where did that come from, do you think? I think the fact that I had nothing to compare to really worked well and not once did my parents say that you don't you haven't got it in you they have always been like you can do this because um the year before that or the two years before that i had done a bungee jump and it was from a 120 meter tower and my dad 
always, 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 even now uses this as an ex uh, example. And he's like, you stood on that tower and you jumped with just a rope tied to your feet. Like, you can do anything you want. <laughs> so, I, like, it compares everything to that. And I think that really helped because I was kind of like, huh, I haven't spoken to many other people about this. And the only people I've spoken to have told me I can do this. And I haven't seen anyone kind of, you know, um, like I haven't seen anyone my age do it yet. So why not try and see what I can do? So I was kind of like, I think it worked really well that I was surrounded with positive people. And yeah, no, that was that. Was that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, incredibly supportive parents. That's mm. amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so, <laughs> try not to get bogged down in all of this too much, but it's it's really interesting. Um, would you say that you're, were you seeking adventure or were you just wanting to find a way to challenge yourself? I was doing both. I was seeking an adventure by challenging myself because my definition of adventure is kind of, it, it falls within the whole, you know, outdoors challenge by myself and something that I haven't, like, an experience that I haven't had before or I'm pushing past a fear and, you know, stuff like that. So I think that's how it kind of went for me. It was both. It was always, I was looking for an adventure um, and... I've always been very specific with my own definition of adventure. I've always been like, I'll talk to other people about what they think is an adventure, but I'll decide what it means for me. And I think that's worked really well so far. <laughs> well, that's the wonderful thing about it is that it's so subjective. Yeah, definitely. And we all have our own version. <laughs> so how old were you when you did that? That, that weird 100 mile ride? Uh, yeah, the Himalaya ride. <laughs> 17. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and um, so what was the journey? What was that Himalayan journey? How it, long was it? And It was supposed to be like 100... Oh, sorry. It was supposed to be 1,000 to 1,200 kilometres long. It was cut down to 800 because um, at one point the Indian army thought that I shouldn't proceed to go to um, Srinagar because at the time there were some riots going on and riots in Kashmir region of India are really, really bad. Like um, they were throwing pellets at, not throwing, shooting pellets, shooting pellets, yeah, that's the word. They were shooting pellets at teenagers who were protesting against, I'm not sure what, but they were like militants and it was it was a bad situation. And I'm not going to lie, I was not happy about the fact that I wasn't going to be able to proceed. I, I cried a lot about that. And then my dad was like, look, you're going to do bigger things. Like, you know, don't, don't, don't stress too much about it. But then the reason it hurt so much, the fact that I couldn't continue, was because in the journey, in whatever 800 kilometers that I had done, there was a mountain pass. It's called Gata, well... The mountain pass, it's called Laching Law or something. And there are 21 hairpin bends. And I had no idea that after the 21 hairpin bends, there is a five kilometer climb to the mountain pass. So I've always worked, like I had learned by then, this was in the bang in the middle of the whole like journey. And I'd learned by then that I had to conserve energy, this, that, and 
was doing fine with the guitar loops. I was really enjoying the hairpin bends and got to the end, like the top one. And I don't know what happened. I was like, I was struggling to breathe. And my dad has a very bad case of asthma. Just then uh, the vehicle passed and the driver, he was obviously, they don't take tourists seriously. They just think like, even if you're trained, even if you're, even if you're a bloody athlete, they wouldn't believe that you will be okay if you just kept going on. So this driver made a big deal out of me struggling. And then he made a big deal about my dad, who was, who was genuinely having an asthma attack. <laughs> and he was like, okay, we need to get medical help for him. We need to get you in the car, blah, blah. And I was just like, but. I can go, I can walk, but I can go, you know? Like, and at that point, I wasn't walking. I was still on the bike and I was going at a ridiculous speed. I think I was going at like three or five kilometers per hour. And I'm slow on uphills, but my aim is always to just get over the mountain. I'm, I'm never about going fast. Um, and this guy was like, yeah, get in the car. And the minute I got in, and the, like, it was that mountain pass that my bike was in the car and it was like a little section of the big route and bear in mind like that, that little section I cried so much about it I called my mentor I was just like I was just like dad are you sure you're having an asthma attack <laughs> I was I was being and I the next day I woke up and realized I was being incredibly selfish it's like that man is still in the car and he still wants me to ride and just for one mountain pass which I couldn't finish I'm I'm making such a fuss about it like why like I don't need to like I realized then like the next day or a few days after that I didn't need to prove to anyone this was for myself and this was for you know this was to see what I can do and it's okay that my dad was having troubles with breathing. I was having troubles with breathing. It's it's okay. And I cannot be so selfish. What an amazing lesson to learn. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Lois' lesson learned the hard way. Like, no one said a thing. My parents were actually... Well, mum, not so much. But my par- my dad was actually like, like, get on your bike, keep going, do this and all that. So he was all in for me going forwards and doing this. But, uh, and like... Yeah, I was just like, and they, Nick, he didn't say that you're being selfish. He didn't say that I was, um, you know, I was just kind of making a big fuss about it. It was just me who realized like a couple of days later that when I was riding, like actually I was doing the highest motorable pass, which is not, not the highest, by the way. It's, um, they say it's an 18,500 uh, feet or something. But it's not, it's not. It's on 17,800 or something. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, That's PR. <laughs> no, I, I went on the top of the climb and I, it says highest motorable pass in the world and it says the altitude and then I looked up on Wikipedia and it was wrong and I was like, oh, damn it. Now I have to go find the highest. <laughs> <laughs> but I, no, I, don't, I don't care that much, but I just did it to see if I could do it and I we could so that was fine but yeah, yeah came down after that so the way it goes is like the route passes from Manali and then there is a mountain pass called Rohtangla 
it's around 13,000 feet. Um, then there is a pass called Baralacha, and that is like, it, it gets proper cold there because you're in the middle of this whole, you're in the middle of the biggest mountains that this valley has to offer. And the pass itself, it's so long to climb up that. And um, once you're over, you, um, like, because it's cold over there, and because the weather really gets bad over there quite often, um, you just find hard to breathe, basically. But anyway, yeah, that, that pass was quite hard. And then you go down and then you do the loops that I mentioned earlier. And then that pass, and then there's another pass, and then you reach Le. And um, this city of Le is like the center of Ladakh. I think is the only city in Ladakh region. And it's really like... This, this, I, I would have thought that there aren't, there wouldn't be many people there because it's based on three thousand meters. So, like, yeah, I was kind of like, ah, oh, who's gonna, it's gonna be like, you know, around there, but it's a proper city, like, like London. No, well, not like London, let's say, like Swindon or something. It's, it's quite big, um, and then from there you go up to this pass, and it's a forty kilometer climb. So you go from 3,000 meters to 5,200 meters. I'm getting my maths wrong, but something like that. It's a proper big climb and it's really fun. And then the route towards um, Srinagar is like a completely different road. And this whole road that I did was covered with... There were full, the road was full of army trucks. And the people in the Indian Army are the kindest people. Like, you stop at the side of the road, and if they see you alone, they stop and they ask if you want water. They stop and they ask if you have enough food. And obviously, I didn't have many bags on my bike. I only had one on my back. So they stopped and asked if I had enough of everything, if I had a change of clothes, if I had, you know, enough things to keep me warm and all that. And, and they're so amazing. Like, and there was a point in our journey where I didn't have a place to camp, basically, because there was nothing open or nothing there. And, um, yeah, an army truck, like... The, and there was one space left in the place where we could camp. We thought it was all taken. There was one space left, and there was this guy from the army which wanted to... which was gonna... like, who was gonna go in and stay there because he had it booked or something. I don't know what it was, but... Um, we had a chat just before we went in and he said that he 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 said like you know you don't you don't look too old how old are you what are you doing blah blah um and i told him that oh yeah i'm i'm the dangi i come from pune i'm riding from manali to leh and then to srinagar and i'm i'm looking for a place to sleep i'm really tired today has been a bad day and so he he just like he got me some tea and we had a proper chat about everything about life and my parents were some like they hadn't got there yet and this guy gives up his space in the in the place and that was going to be his first warm night sleep not in an army truck and he gives up his space for for me and i was like oh <laughs> i was like oh that is amazing like i i i I didn't ask for it, but it just happened. And I think that was the lesson that, you know, 
I yeah, I don't know what the lesson was, but what I mean is like I learned then that sometimes things, good things, just happen and like just accept it when it. Do. Yeah, I think it's like you know, plan for the best, mm. uh, plan for the worst, and hope for the best. And you usually, whilst we always have to be wary, you can often, when traveling, rely on the kindness of strangers. Yeah, more yeah. often than not. Mm, definitely, yeah. that's so, always been my favorite. <laughs> so, forgive my naivety, but you know, culturally in India, is it a normal thing to see a seventeen-year-old young woman out on a solo adventure? No. Um, in fact, like that wasn't a normal thing. A, a lot of things that I've done ever since I was a child haven't been quite normal. So like me wanting to go out and climb mountains, like I was, I was quite a lot into like mountaineering, long distance hiking and all that. And that, that is not normal. And it, it's always been because my dad has wanted to go on adventures for a long, long time, and he never got a chance because he did chemical engineering and he started working abroad in oil and gas and all that. And because of that, he never got a chance to do all these things. But as as his daughter, he always has wanted me to have the most adventurous life. And he's always wanted me to do what I really like to do. And that's also not normal. So... When I decided that I wanted to study abroad and do sports management, it was not a good thing because everyone was like, sports management, like you don't get jobs in that because like anything in sports, adventure, all that is, is not a thing in India. You either could do medical or you do um, engineering or you become a lawyer or something. Like literally there aren't many options and even if there are options, they aren't open to everybody and it's it's hard like to choose something different and and my dad always was like um he 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 told me that you know a lot of things that you do they don't fall under the normal in our country and that's why when you go to the uk try not to come back (laughs) he he said that to me on the airport he was like make sure you actually like you know do something good out there don't come back (laughs) And I was like, okay. I mean, that's, you know, obviously he's so supportive and quite clearly a wonderful <laughs> man. But that's a really sad thing to have to say to your daughter. It, it is. But then they aren't in India right now anyway. They are in Oman and they wanted to, like... Yeah, it is a sad thing to have to say to his daughter. But he saw the way I was living my life. He saw, like, I wanted to be alone. I wanted to do all those things by myself. And my parents always tried to, like, be lo- give me that space, but also not leave me completely alone. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm still saying about this, like, Himalayan ride. But even when I was back in India after doing what, like... 25,000 kilometers or so even then my parents didn't agree with actually letting me do it all by myself I mean imagine like because on daily basis you read the news about women getting raped getting murdered you 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 see the news about really horrible things happening riots happening like like Hindus fighting with Muslims and all that and it's it's crazy. It's kind of like 
people do do things by themselves, but they do get in trouble, and it's it's not nice, <laughs> and because my parents are very aware of that, and they don't want me to get in trouble that much. That's why Dad was like, "Look, it it, it will be safer in the Western countries." Um, <laughs> I I laugh about that because in Spain that thing happened and. I didn't tell him for days because I was like, yeah, you know how, like, like the the way I started the conversation about Spain to tell my dad was when I was back on the bike and I was like, hey, dad, you know how you said Western countries are safe? Ah, here's yeah. what happened to me. <laughs> yeah, we'll come on to that, I think. So, I mean, really interesting. I mean, now that you're living full time in the UK, do you... Almost. Almost. Yeah, my visa is underway. Um, and well, I've got a provisional visa, but there's a residence permit that you usually get, which I haven't got yet. Okay, well, yeah, see how that plays out. Here's hoping. Mm. No, it will come, it's just a matter of time, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Do you miss India? I... I do not miss where I grew up, but I miss knowing that I was a train ride or a flight away from, you know, going to the Himalayas because I used to go there almost every summer. Yeah, almost. <laughs> and I quite, like, missed that, but I'm not going to lie. The fact that I didn't have many friends growing up meant that I could disengage myself from that place pretty quickly when I came to the UK, which didn't really work in my favour because I didn't know a single person when I moved here. So I was like... I felt properly lonely, like I used to just, I used to either call my mentor um, who actually like encouraged me and gave me the route and like basically taught me everything I know about endurance cycling. I either t spoke to him about, hey, maybe I could do some big routes or big adventures in the UK on th those lines or I could, I would speak with my parents and I found it really hard to make friends. Yeah, I mean... How difficult was that transition then? Um, let's say I was at at a point when I, w I just came here. For a few months at least, I was, I was going on really long rides over the night and stuff, not knowing the rules of how the roads work or anything. I, I would basically be reckless because in a way I was like, eh nothing to lose sort of thing and that's a very pla bad place to be like honestly that's not a great place to be so yeah. you got here and you just started cycling yeah the day i came within the few within the first few hours and it was really crazy i i came down um obviously i had a big suitcase i had a rucksack and i had bike bag well bike box and obviously i couldn't carry all all of it by myself especially the bike box you do need two hands to do it and someone there was this big bus from university and a few volunteers had come to receive us and someone forgot my one of the volunteers offered to take my suitcase and he forgot it in a in the tr train thing and it was it was insane and i was like i don't even know his name I don't know anybody here and my phone doesn't have a SIM card and I'm just like and I had a really shitty phone the Wi-Fi didn't connect properly on it and everything and I was like what am I doing 
why am I here? And it was literally within the first hour of getting here, I was really struggling with life already. Um, got in the bus to Bournemouth and I clearly remember I had a very, very thick Indian accent and I really found it hard to understand the British accent or like, I don't know. I don't know what the accent of the person talking to me then was, but I just found it really hard to understand. And I was like, this makes for an awkward conversation. <laughs> and I, I went back, um, I, I stopped at Bournemouth train station or just opposite that with all of the bags and everything. And a friend, a friend, a friend of dad or something like that, a really like, I think friend or friend or something of my dad's, him and his wife came to like, um, they, they came there and I haven't spoken to the, those people since, but anyway, they came there and they got into a taxi, got me a taxi, well, uh, got us a taxi, went to my accommodation, which was a homestay, which is not a great thing. Like, honestly, I don't know why I chose to stay in a homestay for my first year. Like, I wanted to make friends, but that was the hardest place to make friends because the landlord at the same place and his daughter was a proper brat <laughs> who made really racist comments at me. I don't even know if she knew it, but she was a teenager, like 13, 14. And I was just like, oh God. And, and he didn't like my bike or my bikes later on. Um, and within the first few hours I literally put my bike together and I, I like I said goodbye to the people who had got the taxi because they were just they just they didn't introduce me properly to the place they were more like oh we're from London Bournemouth is a small place we don't know how to you know how to deal with this sort of thing and they were quite fancy and they were just like they were treating me like a child and I was like, fuck off. Oh, like, you know, don't treat me like a child. Anyway, I didn't, I didn't really get along with them and I don't think they liked me either because we haven't spoken since. <laughs> but the first thing I did that day was go on a ride and, you know, I, I went to uni and I was just like, and I, my, I wasn't using maps to do that. So I wasn't using digital maps. I would ask people. I was like, okay, maybe this is how I can know the area because I'll talk to locals. And I tried that. Um, apparently it doesn't work that well in the UK, but whatever. <laughs> um, it did at the time, but yeah. Um, and yeah, within the few months of getting to the UK, I decided I was going to um, ride my bike across the country, which was bizarre. I still, I still didn't understand the whole roads and where I can ride and where I cannot properly I knew the M roads were the ones I cannot ride on <laughs> and I was kind of like I can ride on A roads but then there are roads like A31 which goes to London and it's like a dual carriageway and I was like huh if there are lorries there are lorries like you know it's an A road I can ride here and yeah then there was a police car asked me to get off and all that <laughs> that didn't go well uh but i also like i learned the hard way that you're not supposed to ride on an m road because i didn't i didn't check i rode 50 kilometers on m27 m3 slash m27 um the one that goes from southampton to ringwood and 
to burn it and yeah it was it didn't end well like yeah people kept honking I was like but then I, I was quite happy because there's hard shoulder and I was like oh that's like a bike lane it's <laughs> a very big oh, bike God. lane I was like oh but I don't know why the bike lane has so many like glass pieces on it and so much like debris from the road and yeah never mind <laughs> but then you did you said you cycled the length of the UK well I, I left from my um house in Bournemouth, Boscombe, and I I was just like, fuck it, I've carried what I can with me, and I didn't know what I was doing, it's called bikepacking, so that was quite exciting, I had no idea what I was doing, I just had this Epidura saddlebag and a backpack, and I thought I was, I, I thought I was quite pro, honestly, no, uh, I didn't know what I was doing, it was funny, um, I left, and within... I think I was like 110, 120 kilometers in. I ended up at a place called Bentley in Hampshire, which is quite close to Farnborough. And um, my bike broke, my valve came out, and I was like, oh, wow, I, I don't know one thing about bike. Oh, I'm like, what am I going to do? And I was just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend that I know, and I'm going to, you know. And my phone didn't have signal, and I was just like, fuck it, I'm just going to try and do what I can. And I don't know, I bodged it without knowing what I was doing. And there was this woman, um, obviously I was in a very small village, so this woman just came up to me and she was like, are you in trouble? Like, you know, what, what what's wrong with your bike and all that? And we got chatting and she, and she asked me about, have I done this before? And I was like, I've done a ride before, but I didn't have all the bags and stuff on my bike, so I'm not sure. And then she was like, why did you ride before this? And then I was like, oh, I was in the Himalayas in India. And she was like, oh, is that where you come from? How old are you? You don't look very old. I was like, I'm 18. I, I have only come to the country like, what, three, four? No, more than that. Yeah, like less than six months ago. And she's like, oh, do you know anyone here? And I was like, nope. <laughs> she invited me in and she was like, oh, I would love for you to chat with my daughter about all your adventures and all that. I was like, this is an adventure? Ooh, yay, okay then. And yeah, and I was kind of like, invited me in, gave me food, gave me tea, and we got chatting. Her daughter came, then her husband came, and she was like, do you want to stay over? And I was like, yeah, okay. And then... I said that I got lost, which is why I ended up here. And I was kind of like, I wasn't planning on going across the country at this point. I was like, I'm just going to go on a 400 kilometer ride. And she said that, um, how about this? Like, my husband will give you this map and like, tell us where you're going sort of thing. And I was like, oh, that's where I'm going. And like, that was like, I looked at the map. And I, I was like, what's the other end of the UK called? And it was like John of Groats, mainland UK's like other end. And I was like, okay, that's where I'm going. And I was like, dear, that's a long, long way away. Like, are, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I'm sure. I, I, I will somehow make it. And then she was like, well, then you can keep the map. <laughs> and then I said that my bike is broken and I had had a couple of crashes. So that was my first day of wearing clipped pedals. And I had already cra crashed a couple of times. I'd got stuff on my knee. There was blood on my shoes. And it was it was really weird. And, like, they took me to Halfords where got me all the 
stuff that I needed to fix the bike. The person there as well like fixed my bike and helped me out. And I went to pay and this guy just goes, no, you don't need to do that. Like, we're hosting you. That's how it works here. And I was like, wow, I love British people. I I don't, like, how did this happen? Like, what? (laughs) And yeah took me back to his house so that we could start and like well I could start and then yeah gave me packed lunch and all and I left and I was like wow they gave you a packed lunch that's so British (laughs) (laughs) yeah and that night I I went in a gas no not gas station sorry a bus shelter and I was like I just sat there and was like, I don't have enough money to get into a hotel. I don't have enough money to, like, to get anywhere, really, right now. So I um, didn't have a sleeping bag at the time with me. Well, the one I had I left in my house, I was like, I don't, I'm not going to need it, was what I thought. And I didn't carry a sleeping bag. I didn't have a bivy bag. I wasn't prepared. And it was April. Um... And yeah, I I was in the bus shelter wearing every single thing I owned because it was bloody cold. And I just, yeah, I was just like, I I don't know what I'm doing. And I remember I had a notepad with me and I decided I was going to write something every day. And I remember clearly writing in that. I was like, this is shit. I am very cold and I feel very lonely and yesterday I felt like I was with my family <laughs> and I like those like I I would have never thought that now every time I miss my family I visit them yeah I, I'm still in touch with them they're like no, good amazing. friends with me and like every time I miss my family like they I visit them and I take something with me and we have a good chat and I stay over and all that. That's so lovely. Um, yeah, they're really good people. Uh, but yeah, and then that that was kind of how the journey went, sleeping in bus shelters on the sides of the roads. And like, I think I also slept under a bridge where I was just like, I had a rain cover, so I just held it over me. But I would just like go like this and just crawl under something. I think I must have hugely misunderstood. I'm waiting for the part where you tell me that you didn't have a sleeping bag, so you turned around and went home. No, no, I didn't. I kept going. (laughs) Oh, no, no. Turning around was not an option. Not at all. Because, you know, I had to know the country that I was going to live in. So I had to really understand how everything works. And it was so instilled in my brain that the only way I can really understand the British culture and how everything works over here is if I travel slow and travel across. That was like my motto at the time. But nobody knew this. It was in my head. Travel slow and travel across. Um, And... I knocked on random doors like I've heard you're not supposed to do that in this country but I hadn't heard it at the time I I would knock on random doors and another incident which really sticks out is Bolton so between Manchester and um, it was near Rivington Rivington Reservoir and there was a place called Bolton and there was this hall barn and I remember I had managed to book myself in some very, very cheap place. 
and every like I asked people where it was because I couldn't find it on my maps everyone just guided me on the roads that didn't exist and I was like what is happening and then I realized it was at just by the side of a motorway and there was no way on a bike I could go there but I didn't realize it until next day so anyway I rode past reservoir and there was this hill that I went past and my lights weren't working and it was dark and I really needed a wee and I was just like I was stressing out and I was really panicking and I reached on the top of the place um well it felt like a climb so it must have been one I reached at the top of the hill and I saw there was a light on and it looked like I, I felt like I was in the middle of a horror movie at the time because it was just like <laughs> I don't know what's happening. My phone's almost dead and like what's happening with me? And I I resorted to what like I resorted to crying. I was just like I was sitting the side of the road just crying and then I saw this there was this light on, like it suddenly flicked on in this really big hall barn, whatever. I didn't even know what that meant. And I went in there and I knocked and I was like anybody there help and I was screaming for help like it was like right now now if I did that I would I'm laughing at myself actually like it wasn't even a serious situation I could have gone for a week anywhere and I I could have like waited somewhere until it was daylight like na- there were so many things I would do now that I didn't even know existed back then and I think that's the beauty of it because anyway these people opened the door and I was like and I, I at that point I was using whatever was left of my phone battery to call my dad and be like I might be in trouble and I was just like I was just panicking and speaking with him and then obviously the woman opened the door and I was like, do you have a toilet? And then I handed over the phone to her and then my dad said something and she pointed me towards the toilet and I was like, what am I doing? Am I an idiot? Am I an absolute idiot? And anyway, came back and she put the fire on. I sat near it. She gave me a couple of blankets and as I said, I didn't have enough gear with me so no cold, like cold weather clothes and all. And she gave me like a bunch of blankets and I sat there and it was a day before Easter. Yeah, it was a day before Easter. And um, yeah, her and her husband were saying that there is no place where, like, you know, the one that you said, it doesn't exist. And I was like, are you sure? And then I showed her the booking and then she was like, darling, this place is right next to a motorway. How are you planning on getting there? It's <laughs> like, okay, sorry. And then she was just like, and I stopped crying and calmed down. And then she asked me what I was doing. And I was like, um, I'm I'm riding to John O'Groats. And she asked me, and she said, like, I don't want to be rude, but where are you from? And I said, I'm I'm from I'm from India. I I'm new here. <laughs> I've only recently moved. And and, like, and then she looked I think she looked at her husband and kind of said, That explains. Yeah, and then she was like there's, it's Easter tomorrow and um, what the day after I don't remember but she was like do you want to stay over because nothing's going to be open basically and I was like I, I kind of thought for a little bit because they were asking me if they wanted me to they wanted 
me to um no they were asking me if i wanted them to drop me to that motel place and um i said that if it's by a motorway then i'd rather not because i have a bad experience with motorways <laughs> and uh, yeah and ended up the way it happened i saw a photo in their house and i was like i think i recognize that but i didn't say anything right and then and then when we started chatting more the woman just asks me do you know a film called dango and i was like yeah i had auditioned for it and then she was like my daughter had casted in it like she was she played the role of a um german wrestler or something like that and i was like no way and i was like is that her and i was like and and then she said yeah yeah that's that's my daughter she she played a role in an indian film and i was like holy shit that's crazy and i was and the next day i got to meet her and i when i told her that obviously i had i had auditioned for being the role that kind of fought her in the in the match basically in 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 the wrestling match in that film um yeah she, we were kind of like holy shit small world and like who would have thought in the middle of here i would i would find someone that played a role in a bollywood film or something yeah. but yeah that was that was crazy like i couldn't believe that happened but her husband um I, he was ukrainian i think and he he asked me he looked at my stuff i told like they asked me what i had with me so i showed them and I, they're like, this is not a lot for what you're doing you have nothing else to wear like you know over this like a down jacket and i had no idea like i i was like I was like, but it's April. It the weather's not supposed to be that bad. And then they were like, "Darling, this is the UK." <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, yeah, okay." And you're about to reach Scotland. Oh yeah, yeah. They gave me um tons of more like layers to wear, and I said to them that on my way down I'll drop them, and they were like, "They are all yours." And then because this was like happening right in front of me, some of it was like properly new. Like they 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 were like okay and they took me to the closet and they're like okay does this fit you does this fit you does this fit you okay take it all and I was like okay <laughs> I was like what is happening with me why are people helping me so much is this normal do they think I'm homeless oh my god they think I'm homeless oh no and like that was kind of what was going through my head and. Yeah, I um they from then every other day they would ask me where I was and if I was doing okay and they were like please 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 let us know when you're back to Bournemouth and how, yeah how long did it take you to get to Johnny Grace? Oh my god, like two to three weeks. Not not like yeah, it took me a long long time. Um, two to three weeks. It shouldn't take that long, but it took me that long because. I didn't know what I was doing, did I? And then I got my roads wrong. And then when I thought uh, in Scotland, I would just stop at, uh, I would see all the hills, and then I would just drop my bike somewhere with the stuff and be like, oh, I feel like going up and down that hill. I'm gonna do that, and I would do really weird things like that. And yeah, I just wasted time. <laughs> I was like, I was in no rush whatsoever. I just took my time. But why rush? <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the things I really wanted to ask you about today because we'll move on to the around the world yeah. ride in a sec. But 
I, you know, I'm pleased you've said it before I've asked. You know, there's no time limit. Yeah. On riding to John O'Groats. Mm. And if you want to stop and walk up a hill, then... Yeah, definitely. Why not? Yeah, people were so nice there. Like, even when I got to... Uh, there were several bits of A9, um, the last road, that I remember I would just sit at the side of the road and just lie down and just be like, oh, this is good, this is so good. And then someone would just stop and ask if I was okay. And someone would just give me a scone or something, and I was like, oh, what, what's this? And <laughs> the first thought would enter was like, is that vegetarian? And then I would be like, V, stop being silly, just eat it. <laughs> but... Yeah, and, and then eventually I reached John O'Groats and I was sitting there and I remember I was, I was kind of like, holy shit, I actually made it. And I had no idea I was even going to come here. And I looked at the paper map and I, I had circled the place where the guy gave me the map. And, you know, the first, the, the family, when they gave me a map, I circled that place on the map and I just looked and I was like, I cannot believe this happened and yeah it was crazy <laughs> and like inevitably my next question is how did you get home I, I took multiple trains and oh. bear in mind I had never 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 ever taken a train before in <laughs> the UK yeah by then until then well so it was I, I was oh, I feel so dumb but like I kept asking the you know the people at train station who have who are in fluorescence what are they called the people who work at train stations well the staff the staff that's what they're called I kept asking the staff I was like what like where do I keep my bike will my bike be safe um it won't be stolen will it and 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 I obviously I didn't know that you could I I don't think you could do e-tickets at the time I'm not sure because I had like this big bunch of tickets to get from Wick to Bournemouth. And I, I was like, this is one ticket for my bike. This is a ticket for me. Ticket for my bike. Ticket for me. Then I have to change here. Seven minutes, six minutes, four minutes. What if the train gets late? And like I, I, I kept asking all these questions. And the guy gave me um, this assistance card. Uh, you know the one like that they give for disabled people yeah. in case they need assistance he gave one to me because he thought I was a bit <laughs> <laughs> it's a pick of a journey though uh, Yeah. I went uh, to Fort William I went to the Highlands when I was 16 on the train on my own and you know it was it was a very alien I had to walk across Glasgow and change trains oh that. yes yeah yeah that was confusing yeah <laughs> Uh, by now I know the road <laughs> so then it's so amazing and we've talked so much about stuff that I thought would just be the introduction to the podcast but you how can... do you go from that journey to then deciding to cycle around the world where where does the spark of the idea come from well it it comes from the fact that, remember I said that during my journey to John O'Groats, I was reading, oh, well, I didn't say that, but I was reading a lot. I felt lonely. I would just read on my Kindle. And I was reading Juliana Buring's This Road I Ride. And I kept thinking to myself every time I'd ride, I was like, Man, do I have it in me to do something like that? I would so love to 
do something like that. And I kept thinking, I kept thinking, and I was just like, I kept reading as well. And I really loved it. And when I was in John O'Groats, sitting there on the bench, and I was just like, oh, can I do it? And then I, I was just thinking to myself, I looked at everyone who has done it as well, and I was like, wow, they were like at least 30. <laughs> and like, you know, well, they were at least 20. And like, can I do it? Like, do I have it in me? And then I was just, I kept thinking, and I was like, I said to myself that, look, you didn't know anything about this country, and you rode across it, and you didn't even need that much money. <laughs> Maybe you can go around the world. And, you know, I somehow gave myself that permission to dream bigger than I was at the time. And, yeah, that was when the idea came about. And that's when I, like, I still, like, the whole train journey, I was just like, do I want to? Like, you know, do I want to go that big? And then at the same time, I was like, I mean, it's an obvious progression. I know I can do this. I can do that. Like, it's fine. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't, like, done shit tons of research when I was back. Looked at every single person. Well, not every single person. I missed out so many. But yeah, I looked at people who have done it before. And I was like, man, I would so love to do it. And read a bunch of travelogues. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is happening. <laughs> so... What was the plan? What was the goal when you decided to set off and go? What was the goal? Um, quite ridiculous. I wanted to get around the world in 100 days and I wanted to be the um, fastest woman to do it. I don't know what I'm saying as if I'm embarrassed about it, but um, it I took two months extra to finish, so that's why my voice gets all low and I'm like, yeah, I was planning to do it in 100 days. <laughs> oh god. Yeah. But why? What, do you think you are embarrassed? I mean, I'm not anymore, but like, it's it's weird, you know? I was planning to do that journey in 100 days. It took me two more months. It took me 60, 59 more days to actually finish. And until the halfway point, I was on target almost. Well, yeah. But yeah, that was the idea around the world in 100 days, becoming the fastest woman to do it, and I would still be 19 when I finish, and I, would, I thought that would be, like, a good thing, and I I had trained for it, I trained my ass off for it, and I, I personally felt like I deserved it when I started, because I had trained for it and all that, you know, um, but, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think that, you know, the detail of that journey and the, the full story is probably a different conversation for a different day <laughs> yeah. because we've spoken about so much. But I am really interested in um, what happened to you mentally and, like, where, you know, forgive the... Well, where the wheels came off kind of thing <laughs> and what happened and how you felt about it. And, like, can can you give us the briefest overview of what your journey entailed and what the plan was so the plan was to cycle across australia new zealand alaska canada portugal spain france belgium germany denmark sweden finland russia mongolia china and then back to australia how it actually happened um was me leaving and all of that in 100 days including transit averaging 200 miles per day that was the plan 
Now, the way it happened, I left a month later, over a month later than I had planned. And in the first few days, I had a severe case of, I don't know, stomach bug to the point where I actually um, <laughs> had a small accident yes, on the bike. Uh, yeah, it was bad. It was really bad. And I wasn't able to average what I'd planned. Um, that was gone. And then I was able to actually average what I'd planned or more. And I, I really pushed it then. And I, I genuinely, like the minute I started feeling better, I was like, I need to go for this. And I need to get my days back and all that. So I was really, really sprinting the second half of Australia. And I also wasted a couple of days trying to get a visa, which really didn't work. And I, I, I would now just say they were days wasted because I didn't get a visa. Um, went to New Zealand. New Zealand was amazing. That literally went by in a flash because it was only like, what, 500 and something kilometers. Um, did not get a visa for America. So ended up going to, like directly flying to Vancouver. And even in the middle of that, I had an issue with the flight because I, I, I accidentally had booked myself on a flight with a transit in US and you need a transit visa and it was a non-refundable flight and I was like shit but anyway I booked another flight went to uh, Canada and uh, the section of Rockies uh, there were really really bad forest fires I had a lung infection there oh shit uh, <laughs> so I must say that on a climb on the top of a climb um, near Joffrey Lakes, I literally collapsed, <laughs> and um, yeah, that was that was pretty bad. Um, but anyway, continued the journey, my journey along the prairies, like literally the end of Rockies and till my halfway point, which was in October. I was so fast, like I was lucky with the winds, I was lucky with the weather, and I felt good. I felt confident. I was like, and and everything that had happened in the Rockies. So like, I didn't just have a lung infection. I also got chased by a bear, and <laughs> like, I I I I yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like all of the worst things that I could think of had already happened, and I was kind of like in in the prairies. I was like, nothing can go worse. Like, with that mindset that it cannot get any worse. So like, you know, I, I just have to get on and go fast. And by the time I was at my halfway point, I had done, um, what, over 9,000 miles, obviously. Um, 9,020 miles, that was it. And I had done it in 55 days. So I had averaged around 200 miles each day, if not a little less. Um and <laughs> it was quite funny because I, 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 I couldn't walk properly. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, everything hurts. How, how am I doing this? Like, you know, what the fuck? Um, and after the halfway point, at the halfway point, no, I needed a Schengen visa. That was it. Um, I got there fast. That was okay. But if I wanted to go anywhere after Canada, I was going to need a visa. And Schengen visa... If you're in a country on a tourist visa, you cannot apply for a Schengen visa, basically. 
I was in Canada on a tourist visa. So I went from embassy to embassy, literally begging for a visa. And it took ages before Danish embassy said that they could give me one. And that guy literally took pity on me because he saw all the letters and all that. He saw that I had the documentation. And he also saw that I had already been to at least 10 embassies. So he he literally yeah, took pity on me. And the next day he gave me an appointment, which was on my birthday. I turned 20. Um, uh, on, on my birthday, I got my Schengen visa from there until Halifax, where there was absolutely shit. And there was a catch. Um, I couldn't, obviously, when you get a Schengen visa, you have to get it um, for a country of, um, you, the visa has to be from a country, uh, where you start your journey in the Schengen territory. And I, I couldn't start from Denmark. Like my whole plan would go to shit if I started from Denmark. So I decided to start from Iceland because then like Danish embassy was also doing Iceland visas. And I was like, okay, then, um, basically flew to Iceland, got hit by a minibus in, well, yeah, a minibus, that, that's what it was, in like the first 30 kilometers. Um, yeah, uh, I'm very lucky, what can I say? Um, came back, flew to Portugal. Like, touch Portugal ride was beautiful. It was, it was really pretty, I loved it. Uh, crossed into Spain, I think, in a couple of days. And... Um, second day in Spain, I decide I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna go big and I'm gonna try and get all the days that were wasted back and I'm gonna do this right. You don't get an opportunity to ride around the world often. I've got it, I'm gonna make the most out of it. That was my mindset and I leave uh, that evening. So I, I had already ridden a lot that day. I took a break, I had some dinner and then I was like, okay, I'm gonna ride through the night because I don't feel that shit yet. So. That was the evening, basically. A couple of people on a motorbike rode past, pushed me off my bike. And they were they didn't push me off right away. They were waiting every now and then as I rode for me to kind of... They would overtake or something and then I would pass and then they would just stop. Let me kind of go a little bit ahead and they would come. And I was like, I feel stopped. And the thing is, I had kept my spot tracker off because I was very aware of people tracking me. I don't like being watched and I I don't like being judged at all. And I kept my spot tracker off and that has raised questions and I cared a lot about it after I was done because people actually said, oh, your spot tracker was off. Like, who knows if you even did it and all that. And now I'm like, oh, I don't care. I didn't do it to prove to anyone. But anyway, um, show you for another day. Um, Pushed, got pushed off the bike, um, and and I was I rolled, and whilst I was rolling, I took my helmet strap off because I was like, okay, I'm gonna throw this helmet at that bastard, and I was like really angry, and I don't know what I was thinking. Took the helmet off, and um, I I kind of got up, and the helmet just rolled off somewhere, and I I got up, and the next thing I knew, there was like a knife right at my neck. And this guy holding like my my hands like kind of behind, and I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> and then um, this other guy, he lifted my bike up, and he was just going through all my stuff and just like pulling things out of the saddlebag, just 
like you know just just taking things out and throwing them them around and I was like what is wrong with them <laughs> and uh, I remember re- I really 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 noticed that knife like I can I, I can like imagine it when I close my eyes like it was properly long and really sharp and it looked like a kitchen knife <laughs> um and um I I remember I was like okay right now if I scream move scream or move there are chances the knife is actually going to go in and I'm 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 not going to let that happen so I I had to keep myself from doing anything stupid and the only way to do that was to kind of distract myself so I kept looking at the guy right ahead he's doing all these things to my bag and yelling something at me or the guy behind me whomever and I was like, okay, how does he look? Does he resemble any Indian actor? Like any Bollywood actor, any Hollywood actor? Like, does he resemble anyone? What what else can I see? And I was like, ooh, there's a number plate on the motorbike. And I memorized the number plate. It started with a B, ended with a six. And I was just was just like, if I remember the first and last digit, everything will be fine. And I was like, okay, that's gonna be my mantra for now. I'm just gonna keep repeating it until this ends or I die. And I kept repeating it to myself and like in the next thing I knew kind of took the knife off and like just pushed me off. I, it felt like I fell down something because I remember there was an impact on my head. I rolled over, then I rolled over again and then there was another impact on my head and then I don't remember anything. And then there was like a bike on me, on me literally. And, um... My nose was bleeding, but I didn't know that until later. I um, I I think I was unconscious for a few hours. I might be wrong, but, you know, I think so. Who knows? <laughs> I, I got up, I pushed my... I looked... Obviously, I knew the bike was on me, because even if I was unconscious, I, would, I could feel the thud, you know? And I reached for my frame bag, and I got a... Um, got my torch out my head torch and I was like where the fuck am I like what what's happening I don't remember anything (laughs) I was like why am I here what country am I in and like I didn't remember much I um, took my bike pushed it back up and I saw my stuff was sprawled across the road and I um, I picked it I was like okay what Put it on, put it back on my bike. Obviously, the bags where they go and everything in the bags and all that. Uh, saw what was missing, but I wouldn't remember if I even had it because I couldn't remember much at all. And I was like, so which way am I going, left or right? And I was just like, <laughs> I just went in one way, which turned out to be the correct way. Um, and and I ended up at a gas station, and this guy. He saw me and, and the minute he saw me, he knew something was wrong. He just he just shut down everything at the gas station, like put that out of service, you know, in Spanish, whatever it's called, the sign outside. And there was a motel and a cafeteria just like behind a little bit. He took me there and he kind of got me some coffee and he was like, he said in Spanish something on the lines of, do you want to tell me what happened? And I said, literally i have no idea and then i he said do you have a phone and i was like oh i do have a phone and then it was i was wearing several layers and 
always, always, always. I keep my passport and my phone and my biometric residence card in that. So it was still in there. So I took my phone out and uh, I was, I was like, and then he was like, passcode. And I was like, I don't remember. <laughs> but he, I don't know how, but he looked at the phone. He tried zero, 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 which was my password. It worked. Um, Google Translate told him, I, I don't remember what's happened, but my head really hurts. And I think my nose, like I, I touched my nose, it was bleeding. And it was like, okay. And then it was really hard talking to him because like, though, like I felt the language barrier <laughs> and a family overheard me saying a number to him, which was the number plate of the motorcycle. And yeah, that's, that's kind of how it kind of turned out. Then they said, oh, that's a motorcycle. And I was like, yes, motorcycle. And then I suddenly, I kept getting memories. I was like, motorcycle. Yeah, they, they pushed me off. Then there was a knife, there was a knife involved. And like, I kept talking after that and I pieced it back together. And I was like, yes, this is what happened with me. And um, hospital and all that. And they said I shouldn't be riding anymore. They said I should be, um, yeah, it's not safe and all that. And I was like, oh God, it's kind of like, one opportunity and my bike's still fine it was thrown down that thing i got broken the bike didn't that's a sign that i need to continue and um, i it was scratched i'm not gonna lie but I'm, I'm, i i said it was not broken so i just took it with me i was like you can't keep me in the hospital because i'm not gonna stay and i had a, i had a prop i raised my voice i told them that i'm not gonna stay in the hospital um went back and I went to the motel and I think I spent like a day and a half or something there and however shit the condition was I got back on the bike um, <laughs> and uh, yeah it was not great I wasn't doing much distance at all I was doing like between 100 kilometers and 100 miles and then it's like it would gradually increase by a little bit um, every week or every day, no, every other day, something like that. Every week, let's say. <laughs> but yeah, that was what happened in Spain. Yeah, and then I guess you know you finished in one hundred and fifty-eight days. No, one hundred and fifty-nine days. But like again, like by the time I was over the Spain incident, and by the time my body was functioning again, it wasn't. It it's still like. All the way till I got to like Belgium or so, I still was really struggling with everything. But in Belgium, I rode my first 300 kilometer after the incident. And it took me 24 hours, which is a long, long, long time to do 300. Like it doesn't take that long. It should take 16 hours maximum. Um, and I was like, oh, like I'm, I'm able to do this. I'm going to continue. And that was like, that was, I, I, that was like a breakthrough. I was like, I'm out of the race. I'm not going to win anything. And I, I'm not going to get any record anymore. But I'm so grateful to be alive right now. Because I've had tons of incidents where I could have been killed. Like, legit, the bear thing. I could have died getting hit by minibus. The weather was so crap, no vehicles could see me. I was lucky that the minibus hit me the way it did and I fell the way I did because I didn't get injured too bad 
well, I was shaken up a bit, but whatever. And then, like, finally, the big one, like, there was a knife at my neck. That's like, I could have definitely been killed, but I didn't. And 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 I was so grateful to be alive. And I, um, when I was in Finland, I had an option to either take a flight back to India and just call it off, or um, or continue through winter in Russia. So I continued through winter in Russia. I only did halfway, but I only went to Lufa, which is not even halfway. But uh, I would still like to say that I've been to cycled in Russia. <laughs> Oh, people are so nice over there. I love it. Um, and it was so fucking hard riding bike uh, in the snow. Uh, but yeah, that was it. And then India and then back to the finish line. <laughs> I mean, I said before we started that I was probably going to ask you a couple of tough questions. Yeah. So, you know, take these at face value and being devil's advocate deliberately. <laughs> Do you think you were naive before you left? Definitely. I thought it was just going to be like I'm not going to lie I don't think I don't think I respected the journey that much I think I just left I was reckless <laughs> I think I just left thinking it's going to be fine if I've trained for it I had considered the threats so I'm I'm not going to lie I had considered I'd made a contingency plan and all that I'd made a risk assessment I knew things could go wrong but I didn't think it would go wrong to this, this extent somehow and I was kind of like it'll be fine it's just around the corner and that was like my mantra harden the fuck up and it's just around the corner um and yeah part of it was because I was kind of naive and I was thinking I was yeah I, I would definitely say that I didn't have that much respect for the actual journey and for the enormity of the adventure Okay, yeah, and I'm really interested in what's changed because you know that's something like that's so transformative. Mm. Do you, why did breaking a record or setting a record or doing something in a certain amount of time matter to you so much before you set off? Um, I think it was um, I think it was a lot about me wanting to like it, I, I wanted to leave a mark if that makes sense I wanted to leave my mark I wanted to be someone and I've read so many books of legendary people and I I remember I'd cycled from Bournemouth to Kendall to meet like Mark Beaumont and Sir Chris Bonington and I remember I got like signed books from both of them and I was kind of like, oh God, one day I'm going to be one of them. And I was like, I had, I was so fixated on leaving my mark and being someone in this country. Like, and I wanted to show that, hey, you know what? When I came here, I was nobody. Now I'm somebody. <laughs> it sounds silly. It really sounds silly. But that was what was going through my head when I said that, right, I want to do it in 100 days and I want to, you know, that, all that. <laughs> I don't think that sounds silly at all. But, yeah. I think we're all on our own our own journey to working at home what we are and identity is such an important thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think, you know, I, one of the things I've really learned from interviewing, I think we've done 45 or however many of these, is that lots of these people are seeking identity. Mm. We're all looking for our own version of that. Yeah. That's why everyone wants to do first or fastest because they would be the only ones 
who have done it at that extent. Well, interestingly, I don't think everybody does want to be first or fastest. I think some people do. Yeah, some people do that. Some people do, for sure. (laughs) I mean, that was going to be my next question. And, you know, no wrong answer at all. Mm. Do you feel the same now about leaving marks and... Um, I think, I think by doing the journey the way I did, and I think the whole leaving mark happened by me continuing from Spain rather than calling it off. Um, but that wasn't the intention at all when I did it. I honestly thought if I hadn't continued riding at that point, I would have probably, um, yeah, gone in like a very like dark place. But I was twenty. What did I know? Um, yeah, whatever. I'm twenty one now. Uh, <laughs> I still don't know much. Uh, I I don't know. I I do kind of. I want to leave a mark now, but by doing something for others. And again, tricky question. I'm yeah. doing it deliberately now. Yeah, that's. Do fine. you think? Do you think that leaving a mark is a good motivation? Is it a healthy motivation? It's unhealthy if that's the only motivation. And I don't think I'll ever come to a point where that will be my only motivation because there's so many things that I want to do and there's so many things that I have got planned and none of them are with the motivation of only leaving a mark or you know, being the unique person who does big things. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Yeah, I think I have many other motivations behind taking a challenge on. And yeah, leaving a mark is never the only one. Yeah. How was coming home? How was the finale Uh, and... Yeah, you know how I I would love to say it was amazing, but (laughs) when I... I finished, it was, I finished on Christmas Eve, late in the evening, so on Christmas Day obviously nothing was open, and the only people in Australia were me and my parents, and there wasn't like a big finish, it was just, oh, I finished, oh shit, I rode around the world, and then the next day basically, nothing was open, so me and my dad got really drunk, Um, I had so many cocktails, oh my god, wonderful, anyway, (laughs) but my UK visa uh, expired um, by that time, well it didn't expire, it got uh, cancelled because I was out of the country for too long, so that's one of the things that I now have to avoid doing, being out of the country for too long. I always need to make sure I come back and go back. <laughs> um, so I had to go to India and I I really didn't, like, I wasn't having a great time. I, um, I went to India and I was uh, staying in this really, really small flat with my mentor because I was finding like, at my parents' place, I was finding it really stressful. And I just, I wasn't, yeah, I just wanted to be around my friends and, you know, just, just, I wanted to be in the UK because somehow, like deep inside me, somehow, like I now call the UK as my home and I did back then as well. So the whole journey I had spent imagining having this proper proper like you know 
oh, I don't know how to say it, but I, I really was imagining, you know, sleeping in my own bed in the student house. And, you know, I I moved there from a very like, I, I was living in a really bad house before that. And I, when I moved in, I moved in with my best friend and he he played an important part in this expedition as well. He filmed me for some sections, so which was really cool. And I think all I wanted to do was like, you know, see him and the other friends. And I wanted to just, somehow I was like, I, I even said to my parents, I was like, can I just take you to the UK? <laughs> but when I finished, I was in India for a month sorting out my UK visa, which turned out to be a super, super, super stressful process because when you have traveled to all these countries, suddenly questions are asked and I had to do all sorts of medical tests and um, yeah, I had to do another interview and I had to um, re, um, re-enter, not re-enter, what's the word? I had to um, get back to uni, but like I had to pay the fee again, I had to do all the procedure again like that re-enroll yeah re-enroll and that was quite stressful there was so much to do but like when I came to the UK like finally I think that was awesome because a couple well three or four of my friends uh came to the bus station so I took a plane back home and then a bus from Heathrow to Bournemouth and all of my friends were there and I was like this happened like I and throughout the bus journey I was like are they are they going to be changed like you know what's what's going to happen when I get off the bus and it just felt like I had never left I felt like everything just picked off from where I'd left and it was amazing um and I yeah I really kind of enjoyed a few days of being you know in the place that I felt home was my home um but then it all kicked in I was like shit so I've done all this and I don't know like what I'm going back to uni like what what am I gonna do with my life and I I, I kind of I, I went through a really weird patch where obviously I was freelance writing and stuff but then I would just randomly decide to get a Schengen visa and go to Norway for a long distance hike and just wild camp and then come back and then I would go to Switzerland like the following week and then somewhere else the following week and then just randomly go to Scotland so like when I came back I wasn't able to sit still at all like initially yes I was into the outdoors I was into adventure and all that but I would go to uni and you know do what you do when you go to uni after I came back, I was like, I was going nuts. I just, you know, I was seeking more adventures somehow. <laughs> you know, we've gone, we've not gone full circle. We've gone on this journey through this conversation. And you told me at the start about this, you know, young girl who was playing football and eating lunch on her own and probably not quite sure who she was. Yeah. And what she was. Do you think you've worked that out or are you still working on it? I think I'm still working on it and I mean, yeah, I'm I'm still working on it and I'm still working on like who I want to become and who I want to be know, known as and what how I want to come across when I 
you know, see people and when people see me actually. Um, and I think I'm still figuring it out and I think everyone is still figuring it out, like whatever age they are and yeah, but like, you know, that's that's the good thing about it. It can change any time. Where are you happiest? Oh, on, on the bike. Um, actually, no. I'm happiest when there's like a fire and a wild camping. Like, I, I don't know, I've done several things where I, I just make fire and I just bevy on the side and yeah, I I feel the happiest there. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think where there is a fire and there are friends, that's like a happy place, fire and friends. <laughs> Yeah. Like the ancient times. <laughs> like the ancient times, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we've not had many 21-year-olds on the podcast, but <laughs> I think it's fair to say that you've done your fair share of adventure and a justified your place. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I've, I've tried. <laughs> no, cool. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much for doing it. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk and you can find us and follow us on Instagram at theadventurepodcast. You can also keep up to date with Vidangi on Instagram and Twitter at Wheels and Words. The podcast is produced in association with Sidetrack magazine, so for an extra adventure fix, visit sidetrack.com. The podcast is produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. And as always, please um, do head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They make a huge, huge difference. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.